Welcome to Charity Questions, the podcast from the Directory of Social Change, where we take people from the charity sector and we ask them questions either from our Twitter community, our social media community, or questions from the DSC staff. So our guest today is Deborah Alcock-Tyler. Deborah is the DSC's CEO, and and she is the author of many management and leadership books, and she's an expert in the charity sector at management and leadership. And this podcast today, we're going to do a deep dive into this and uh, into her management and leadership skills and how she's become an author of so many amazing books so welcome Deborah welcome to the podcast again hi George so for anybody that's not heard Deborah's last podcast about the life of Deborah Alcock Tyler if you're interested in hitting her career outside of the management and leadership space please feel free to go and check out that podcast it's a really interesting view into how Deborah got to the point where she's able to write all these amazing books and be this leader so let's uh, let's jump in then and talk about your management and leadership skills so you've been on this journey in your career to become the CEO of this charity and, and now of course you're in a position where you have all this management and leadership knowledge how have you got to this point in, in your career where you're able to be this expert on management and leadership? I well, I wouldn't call myself an expert per se. I, I you know, I, I know quite a lot about it, and I've got a lot. Can of I call you an expert as someone that isn't you? Maybe I'm not sure. Well, maybe okay. <laughs> um, I was very, very privileged that, that one of my a major part of my career. I spent 14 years working for an organisation called the Industrial Society, and they were an organisation in some ways not dissimilar to DSC. Actually, they were about making the world of work a better place for people, and they did that through training training or passing information on and writing books and things like that, which of course is how we do it at DSP as well. Um, but this was an organization absolutely dedicated to and obsessed with leadership training, leadership management mm-hmm. training. It was one of the biggest income generators for the organization was the training we did. And also they carried all of that training out internally. So my very first job when I was, so I became a manager when I was, you know, was team leader, we would have called it in those days when I was 21. And the very first thing that happened when I got promoted in the industrial site was I got sent away on a leadership training program to yep. learn how to be a leader. So it started, so I was just inculcate, and you got the training over and over and over. I mean, you could not survive in the industrial society. You know, you couldn't pass, get a couple of months without being sent away on some course to learn how to be a better leader. So I, it was trained into me. You know, when people ask me about, you know, natural abilities for leadership, I'm like, hmm. You know, I'm not really sure. You know, you can be born naturally bossy, which I was, according to my mother. But leadership is absolutely something you can learn how to do. There may well be some natural leaders in the world, but I'm not convinced. I think most of the time you've got to learn how to do it. I agree. Um, yeah, even, even the stuff around transformational leadership and how you speak and stuff like that. It's a bit like when people say, oh, I'm not very good at public speaking. It's, you know, because I'm shy. It's that was just a behavior. You know, it's like you would shout at a child who was abusing a toddler, wouldn't you? So you're, you're perfectly able of raising your voice, you know, in those sorts of circumstances. So people say, like, I don't, I'm not really naturally a leader. It's like, well, nobody is. Mm. Learn how to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So that's how I, I would say it started off at like 21 years old. I was already being trained and taught and set on courses. You know, nobody assumed that I would just know how to do it. Absolutely. And have you also delivered training in the past as well for managers and leaders? I absolutely have. I've done, I've done, you know, for years I was a management leadership trainer. I, and also I was part of a research team that researched into management leadership, you know, so yeah, and I had to attend lectures and speeches by, you know, leaders and things like that. So yeah, it was my, certainly for that 14 years at the Industrial Society, you know, mm-hmm. it was full of learning how to be a leader and about leadership and also practicing it because I was a, a leader and a manager myself for most of that time. Yeah. And what, what did you enjoy about that training? Delivering that training? That's fine. Um, I don't really enjoy delivering training very much, if I'm honest, George. You know, I, I, you know, I was pretty good at it because I was taught well how to do it. Um, what I do like 
what of course is hugely valuable about it is the fact that at the end of it hopefully you've opened a new way of thinking in somebody's mind about how something can be done differently it's never for me about turning out people doing the same kind of thing it's like you're basically giving someone a tool to make their to make them better at their job which means they're going to make the environment better for the people with whom they're working and that those people are therefore going to be better able to achieve the objective of the organization so for me it's the value is really about that is that the more people are learning the better they're going to be at whatever it is that they do but yeah in terms of training i never really enjoyed being a trainer if i'm honest fair enough i was gonna say i'm surprised you said that actually i'm surprised i didn't think that would be what you'd say i don't really enjoy public speaking george True, true. <laughs> I do a lot of it and I, you know, I'm pretty good at it, I think, but it doesn't mean I enjoy it, you know. I think this sums it up perfectly when you say that you can learn things and maybe from your perspective, it sounds like the anxiety might still be there for that, but you've learned to be great at it and yeah. then compartmentalise that. Does that sound fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, people seeing me give speeches or running sessions or anything like that would never for a minute know that I feel sick and ill and sweaty before I start on a conversation or I start a speech or I start a, you know, I'm, I always feel super anxious about mm-hmm. how I'm going across so people can hate me and stuff. While I'm actually speaking, I forget all about it though, George. That's what's interesting. I would say that to those of you who, who are worried about, you know, the fact that particularly the more senior you get in leadership, the more you have to do the public um, facing stuff, is that actually that when I'm still up there what happens is I'm, I'm not nervous whilst I'm actually speaking because I'm not thinking about me I'm thinking about my audience mm. and that I'm really that's also why you know I frequently get into trouble for forgetting <laughs> that I'm supposed to be being professional not swearing you know because I'm with them you know and so whilst I'm doing the actual speaking I'm fine because I'm not thinking about me at all I'm thinking about them but then when I get to the end of whatever speech or session I'm doing I then get all the, the sweats come back when I'm oh my god did they think I was terrible you know <laughs> they think I'm awful because you know I'm human and vain like everybody else is I want Absolutely. everybody to become awesome all the time and they don't you know and we always grow the most from the constructive feedback but I tell you what I want the positive stuff more <laughs> absolutely oh well I'm, see, I'm not even sure I agree that we do grow the most in the constructive feedback George I think that's a tiny little bit of a myth if I'm honest Ooh. you know I always say to people is the feedback you're going to give me something I don't already know about myself mm-hmm. you know because so often people say well you talk too fast Deborah yeah I know I'm 56 years old I've been talking too fast for 56 years of my life I do try and slow down but you know well, what's the point of telling me that you know I am trying actually and I remember years and years and years ago I'd just given a major speech to a group of very very senior leaders and it was about communication skills and immediately after I'd given the speech the director of the program that I that I was speaking on came straight up after me speech was straight over and said right here are my notes you know basically critiqued what I'd done and you know pretty good but also you could have done this better this that that that, and I was crushed Mm. and I learned from that that now I say to people like do not give me feedback when I've just spoken unless you're going to say you are awesome (laughs) if you want like wait for two or three weeks time yeah when I've had time to like and then give me the feedback if you think I can improve but don't do it in the moment and I actually think that I have this philosophy, George, that people respond better to the things you say they do well than not. Mm. I had years and years and years ago, this is a relevant management story, actually. I was leading a very small team, and one of the members of my team had recently graduated from university, and it was their very first job. And this was in the time when, you know, you were really expected to portray yourself very professionally in the workplace. And this particular individual didn't. She was lovely, but um, she, she always looked a bit scruffy and a bit unkempt and a bit, you know, tatty. And I, my boss kept saying to me all the time, you've got to do something about this individual's, you know, dress sense and blah, blah, blah. And it was really difficult for me to say, like, you don't look great. Can you sort yourself out? 
But anyway, one particular day she came in, she bought a new dress and for various different reasons she wore it to work and she looked amazing. And so we all said to her, you look fantastic in that dress. That's absolutely gorgeous. She then went away and bought the same dress in several different colours. And then all, and her actual behaviour, how she dressed, completely transformed. Mm. And I learned such a valuable lesson, George. Mm. I'd said to her, you don't dress appropriately for the workplace, you need to sort it out. That's a negative thing. That doesn't make mm-hmm. her feel good. It doesn't inspire her. But because she got such a fuss made of her when she got it right, which I didn't do deliberately, it was true. She did look really great. And I wasn't being manipulative, actually, at the time. But because that's, that's the response we had, that made her feel really good. So she wanted to carry on doing that. She wanted to keep getting that feedback. You look amazing. You look great. You look fantastic. And so she completely transformed the way she, you know, mm. you know professionally how she presented herself. And so my experience has been that most of the time if you catch people doing something right and make a big fuss about that they will want to do that thing right more often I agree yeah Yeah. and I I feel like I can see that in my own life I remember starting to go to the gym and someone would say oh your arms are bigger and you think I'm gonna go to the gym even harder now next week yeah Yeah. you you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar my grandmother (laughs) you know it's like negative feedback tends to and also negative feedback is so subjective it's like your it's your mm. opinion mm. you know so yeah I prefer I prefer to find I as you know George you know the philosophy is catch people doing something right mm. I like and that. really build on that yeah like that so you've built these philosophies into a series of books now and at DSC I published four of these so what made you think you know what I'm a management I'm a manager I'm a leader I, I train I have these skills I'm a public speaker but I'm going to put pen to paper now and really get this kind of ideas into a book format what made you want to make take that step honestly it's because you you hear lots of people saying I don't have the time to come on a call so I don't have a time to or I don't have the money to attend a program and it's like you shouldn't be denied access to thinking and learning. And you people can buy a book. You know, books are not particularly expensive. Most people can find the money to buy them or they can borrow them if they can't buy them. Okay. So that's really why. It's because I wanted to reach all those people who said, well, I can't attend a training course or, you know. Also, the other thing is, is a book is quite a clever way because you can buy someone a gift of a book. Yeah. Which they, whereas buying someone the gift of a training course, you're basically saying you're a really shit manager, you need to go on this course. Whereas buying someone a book is a kind of different proposition. It is, it is. I'm like, oh, really interested in this book, George, about, you know, whatever the thing happens is. So, yeah, but that's why, really. It wasn't so much, yeah, it was about the fact that how do I, how do I reach people who are, who are going to make excuses about why they can't come on training programs and things like that? And, you know, one of those is to buy a book. I think you're right. It is about reach, isn't it? And having that responsibility to put that information in another format for people who maybe prefer to learn it in in another way. Could you quickly just talk about the the four books that DSC have published? Just mention each one by name. Yeah, the very first one is in its second print edition that I wrote, and that's called It's Tough at the Top, and it's aimed specifically at chief executives of voluntary organisations. And that's very much about, I mean, it's useful for you as a senior leader as well, because lots of the messages are, are very broad. I mean, there are some similarities, you know, between senior leadership and chief exec leadership, although there are some big differences as well in terms of the loneliness, you know. Um, and that went down a storm. You know, that did that's done really well. It's still in print. We did a reprint. I can't remember, George, was it this year, last year, the year before last year? In fact, yeah, it was not last year, but the year before we did a reprint. Yeah. That was very swiftly followed by another book called The Pleasure and the Pain. And that was because I really wanted to talk to normal people about how to be part of a team because one of the problems you have as a chief executive 
is that how do you get your teams to be cooperative with each other and nice to each other and work well together? So I wrote this book called The Pleasure and the Pain, which is for people, staff, you know, mm-hmm. they're useful at all levels, but that's very much about are you a good team member? How do you get on with your workmates? How do you shine in the workplace? How do you build a proper relationship with your boss? So very much for, you know, the sort of the, the non-leader worker, as, although it's still useful for leaders. Absolutely. That was then followed by a book for the next level down, which is sort of middle to senior managers, and that's called It's Murder in Management, and that's very much aimed where you're not the totally accountable one, where you're the one who gets dumped on from above and, like, you know, pushed at and moaned at from below and probably, you know, criticised from the sideways. Like, how do you deal? That's the one I read. Yes. Yeah. So how do you deal? You know, how do you deal with it when you're that level of management, you know, we don't necessarily have massive control over the strategic direction of the organisation, but you've got to implement it. Yeah. That's what that one was for. And then the board one had been brewing for years, actually. I'd start, I actually started thinking about it when I was chair of the Small Charities Coalition and we were getting, we, we merged with um, the um, Charity Trustees Network. And all of a sudden, we were getting all this information from trustees about how, how much they hated being a trustee, actually, how challenging, how difficult they find it, which surprised me. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I started doing some research. So I reached out to them. I said, like, come on, tell me your stories. I, you mm-hmm. know, I want to write about this. I want to learn. And I'm, I got hundreds, I'm not kidding, George, hundreds of stories about how they experienced being a trustee. You know, they always cared about the cause. But, and much to my surprise, most of the challenges, I thought they'd be moaning about the chief executive or whatever, but most of the challenges were with themselves. Yeah. You know, they, they, they finding the relationship building within the borders, the heart, the chair wasn't any good or they didn't like this particular trustee or such and such a behaved really inappropriately. And also stuff like you know, finance directors having affairs with treasurers and, you know, all the kind of like, you know, human life that goes on as well in these in these things. And uh, so I collected all these stories and that started to form some of my thinking, also having been reporting to a board, obviously, which I've done for many years. Yeah. And then sitting on boards as well. I thought, well, I've got some understanding here. And what I'd noticed with Battle on the Board was that, you know, most trust charities, when they get into trouble, it's not really because they failed at the technical side of being a trustee. It's because the relationships have broken down somewhere or another and they've not been able to see their way forward. And that's when they make the mistakes yeah. and when they get the thingy side. So, yeah. And also the last people who are, you're ever going to get on a course are trustees for a million and one reasons. They think they don't need it. They think they already know. They're too embarrassed. They're too busy. They don't think it's, it's a good use of the charity's funds and things like that. So, you know, I knew that a book was probably one of the very few ways, one of the very few ways in which trustees might get it. So it's very much about the personal behavioural side of being a being a trustee rather than the law. Definitely, yeah. And you actually include lots of practical kind of, uh, I wouldn't say games, but like tasks in the book. And, and I know yeah. there are plans for an audio book, but one thing that really lends itself to the written format it are these little tasks that you put throughout the book. Yeah. What, what made you want to include these little things in, in the book and instead of just having kind of text? Well, because you've got to find different ways to get people's attention, basically, George. You know, it's like you tell a story. For example, people love checklists and ticking things and like scoring themselves and marking themselves on a scale. So you litter, you know, what you do with things like that because that keeps the interest going. And and also it gets people to think. Yeah. You know, it's like when, when people have to think about, you know, well, am I any good at communicating with other people? you know Definitely. then that starts you thinking about are you any good at communicating with people because you have to spoil yourself so yeah that's really why it's about finding all, as many different ways as possible of engaging people's attention 
Perfect. And, and you, you mentioned you learned a lot of this in, in for the Industrial Society. Of course, you did a lot of training there. I'm sure yeah. you learned on the job and from mentors and things like that. But uh, where where were these skills mainly learned, do you think, uh, other, other than those areas? Is there any kind of specific mentor that played a role yeah. in success? Well, not particularly a mentor. I mean, I do have, you know, uh, women who I massively admire have been amazing mentors for me. But actually, I had a, a, a so I've suffered from mental health problems for all my life, but they were or certainly from the sort of mid-teens onwards, but they were undiagnosed for years. Okay. So I didn't actually know I had a mental health issue. I just thought I just wasn't a very nice, capable, competent person, really. Anyway, I, it culminated with me having a massive breakdown in my 30s, which involved me being off work for a long period of time, having to, I had to have therapy twice a week. I wasn't allowed to live on my own. I had to be supervised, you know, it was quite, and it was a really strange time. Okay. Anyway, but but because I'm publicly such a positive, enthusiastic person, which I was before I had the breakdown, nobody, including me, could really understand how somebody who was like a go-getting, positive, you know, take it on the chin, move on sort of person could mm. actually get such a mess. So once I'd recovered from that first breakdown, it, it, you know, I've had a few, one or two since, but ne- nothing as bad as that very first one. I wanted to understand what happened. So I decided to do a degree in psychology. Okay. So, yeah, so I did a degree with the OU um, okay. over six years, um, where I was trying to, although interesting, actually, I, like, I was, I ended up being less interested in psychotherapy and stuff like that. Mm. Some of the George, a bit dodgy, honestly, like some of the evidence, the Freud stuff, the evidence base is like a few Jewish women, you know, who were, who just happened to go to his Not thing. Not necessarily peer-reviewed or anything, yeah. Well, not only that, but it like, anyway. Yeah, yeah. But that's by the by. So some of the, um, yeah. So you did the psychology, yes, yeah, so you did the psychology. I was really interested in brain that. biology, behaviour, how that works and things like that. And also because I wanted to understand what happened to my brain. So I did a lot on child development. We did uh, things on dementia, Alzheimer's in specific. There was modules on how the brain works. I, you know, I can tell you about how synapses work and how optics work and things like that. So, yeah, so I ended up being much more interested in the scientific side, as in, you know, how neurons fire and, you know, potassium channels than I was in you know, sort of Freud and Fine and Young and things like that, yeah. So um, that that psychology degree, it's taught me an awful lot about how people think, Mm. you know, how little we know about how people think. And I've, you know, sort of kept up that, you know, reading the Daniel Kahneman stuff and, you know, behavioural economics and that sort of thing. Yeah. So a lot of it has come from not just experiencing and doing, but reading. I read prolifically about things. I'm so interested in in stuff and so I've learned an awful lot from what I read as well definitely definitely so uh, if you were hiring then in, in the charity sector and um, it's slightly different of course to, to the private sector what do you think makes uh, a good leader in the charity sector as opposed to the private sector what might you be looking for I don't think there's any difference George nice. whether you're a leader of the private sector or leader in the voluntary sector you have to be committed to the vision and know what it is you're trying to achieve you have to understand finance yeah. And you have to understand process and things like that. The only difference I might say, and I guess it's a pretty significant difference, is that in the private sector, you very rarely have to be really engaged in the policy and political arena mm. because, you know, your job is you're selling something. So only to the extent you might have an argument about VAT. But, you know, you don't really have to understand about what's going on in social services or what the latest, you know, charity bill is or whatever. Whereas in the in the voluntary sector, there are very few charities who can get away without knowing something about the broader 
and certainly at local level, you know, you absolutely, if you're working with homeless people or people with addictions or people with mental health issues, if you're not engaged and understand what's going on with your local authority, you're very unlikely to be able to do your job very well. Mm-hmm. So, so I would say probably the major difference is, is, it's not just about having an understanding. You have to be able to engage in the, in the local policy and political with a small P arena and sometimes with a big P, which you're yeah. less likely to have to do in a smaller business. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's a good point. But the intent so that you would be leading in, in a similar way and managing people in, in the same way absolutely makes sense, doesn't it? I think I think leadership in the volunteer sector is probably a little bit harder from the mm-hmm. point of view that expectations are higher. Mm. People don't, it, you're not allowed to be a human being in the voluntary sector when you make mistakes, when you behave inappropriately, when you say the wrong thing, you'll come down much, much harder on mm. than you are in the private sector. When you think at the moment about all the stories you know, that there are around about sexual harassment or, you know, um, racism in organisations and things like that. The voluntary sector is taking an absolute drubbing about it in a way the private sector isn't, but the private sector is definitely not better. Definitely and it's worse, you know, but they don't get the same drubbing because people, whether rightly or wrongly, do have higher expectations of charities, you know, yeah. they do. Well, why do you think that is? I think it's because charities are perceived to be there to help other people and that we want to believe that those people who are helping other people are not greedy, selfish and backstabbing. You know, the fact is we are, <laughs> because we're human beings like everybody else is. So you're not a better human being because you're leading a voluntary sector organisation. You just have different standards that you have to live up to because of that. Yeah. So, yeah. So you built a, a team at DSCO over time and of course people leave and, and one thing you always say is that nobody's bigger than DSC and, and we've lost people that of course are hard to replace but they, they always are replaced and um, you do nurture, nurture talent and I think the one thing I noticed when I joined is that there are a number of people that have been here over 20 years which I don't see anywhere else and I've worked in FTSE 100 with long histories where that is not the case and the people are in and out and the faces change all the time so you're really what, what I could say you're, you're great at nurturing talent and I felt that personally but when you are looking to kind of nurture talent what are you looking for from people what stands out to you attitude attitude yeah always attitude because I can teach you the skills I can give you the experience it's a bit like when you became a trainer George yeah you know you weren't experienced in that field at all you know and so you didn't get given that job because you were an experienced or qualified trainer you got given the job because your attitude was absolutely bang bang to rights is that your enthusiasm your ability to learn you're wanting to get things right you're wanting to be able to deliver your your the way in which you engage with engage with other human beings all of those things were what made me say let's give this chap this opportunity to learn this new skill you know so for me it's always about attitude if you're enthusiastic and positive and can do and let me help and how can I sort it and to be honest that's how you get on in any organization actually not just DSC and not just the charitable sector yeah any any other reasons why people might stay and stay at DSC for so long um you'd have to ask them really I mean we have natural turnover you know so our researchers don't tend to stay as long overall but that's because it's a slightly low paid job and it's you know perhaps less room for growth really in those um, but I think people I think people stay because they like the work that we do they feel that what we do matters we remind them of that all the time so I think that even on the most dull and boring repetitive of days when you've got to like I don't know fill in an expenses form or do something deadly dull I think our staff stay really connected to the purpose behind it. So I think people feel very engaged by the work that we do. I think we try to create an atmosphere where we're all adults. You know, we're mm. all in this together. Like, I'm not better than any of you. I just have a different job. 
you know, but it doesn't mean that I can do your job better than you can do your job, you know. Absolutely. So, so, so we just have this culture at DSC is that, that we're all in it together. So we are going to tell you the truth 99.9% of the time. Sometimes we can't, mm. but that will be because we've been told we can't or because, you know, something's a, a personal, as in P-E-R-S-O-N-A-L matter rather than a general personnel matter. But, so we treat people adults. We know you're consulted. We listen to what you have to say. We don't always do what you know you all want and we don't always take decisions that the staff always agree with but they're always always as you know George involved and have a chance to have their say and we feedback if we didn't do things the way you wanted us to do it we tell you why we didn't do it that way you know so I think people like that feeling of being treated like an adult like we're, we're you know family maybe is a bit too strong a word but you know we're like a bunch of close we have a lot yeah yeah, yeah exactly family so must be the, it's a family feel, should we say? Yeah, it is. It is. It's yeah. like, and yeah. So and I'm uh, careful because it makes me laugh because you know, even though I always say like, look, I don't care about the staff. I care about the beneficiaries. If you don't like it, tough, you know. And yeah, of course I do. I love the staff, but we don't have. I mean, you, it's funny, isn't it, George? We do have this thing at DSC is like, you know, we don't put our staff first ever. We put our beneficiaries, the, the charities that we serve first, always. But somehow staff still feel loved and cared for. <laughs> <laughs> But this is it. We are helping you to help others. And we, and we do talk about that a lot. Another yeah. one that I think personally drives me is the fact we're self-financing and that gives us so much uh, kind of encouragement to to struggle sometimes, actually, in terms of the fact yeah. we don't go out and seek grants. And that's one of our strategic objectives. And what role do you think that the strategic objectives and the vision play in kind of management of people in an organisation? Well, people perform well when they think what they're doing is important and it matters. So, you know, you can't be lazy about these things. You know, it's like, it's like you know, the fact that you're banking checks in the accounts department doesn't mean that you're not helping to make the world a better place. And you need to make that, you know, you need to make that connection for people between the work that they do and what it is they're trying to do. You know, so they play a massively important role. Not least, you need to know what it is you're there to do. But the fact is people want... In my experience, nobody wants to be bored or fed up or pissed off at work. Most people want to love their work and to be proud about it and to speak about it. And actually, it's not that hard to make people feel proud about it when you tell them of the impact of what they do. Absolutely. So, you know, for nothing else, it's just the fact that people feel good about the work. Definitely. No, I like that. I like that. And and I heard you mention um, on a podcast with Tessie, one of our associate trainers, you mentioned something called blinding flashes of the obvious. Yeah. Um, And so during your time as CEO, have you ever had a blinding flash of the obvious where you thought, oh, gosh, I've fundamentally changed how I thought about this type of management and leadership and I'm going to go in a different direction? I think so all the time. I think as the environment changes, I remember... Like some things I don't think I did as well as I could have done that, you know, afterwards I thought. So I remember at that time we had one or two members of staff who were persistently rocking up to work when they felt like it. And um, and the staff moaned about it, that nobody else did, but the staff were really, really cross about this. So this thing kept coming back about, you know, it's not fair, so-and-so's just rocking up, you know, the rest of us have to get here on time. So one of the ways in which we dealt with that is we said, okay, well, first off, when, when this kept coming back to me from the managers, I'm like, oh, for goodness sake, you know. So I said, well, look, is it is lateness and timekeeping really a problem at DSC? So let's establish the facts first. So I said, right, I want every, everyone basically has to clock in because I want to know who's late and who's not late. So we had to do this timekeeping thing. And it massively backfired, actually, because it ended up with people feeling, everybody feeling like they were being punished for the behaviours mm-hmm. of people. And actually, the issue was there were one or two people who persistently come as for 
all sorts. One of one of them wasn't their fault, and we got it sorted and fixed. Definitely. And the other one, it was absolutely just because they were the kind of person who couldn't be asked to turn up on time and didn't see why they should have to. And that was a management issue, and they should have been got rid of. Yeah. Or had the conversations, or something changed, you know. But instead of which, I kind of did this blanket thing across the whole organisation. And uh, and and then after that, I thought, you know, I wouldn't. I that was a mistake. I wouldn't do that again in that sort of way. Um, although you know it's sort of it did make the point I think but yeah I wouldn't do that in that sort of way again so they've been small things rather than big things I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been so well trained in my early years that most of the massive mistakes I made around leadership I've probably made in my early times so I've made loads of mistakes at DSC you know there are people you know there was one time years ago when an individual was, was bullied horribly by another team member mm-hmm. but the team member was a, was a favorite of the director at the time and so the director put up a very I mean to be honest she should have been sacked Mm. but the director put up a really strong case for her and I so and I let it happen you know because I basically had this philosophy of not interfering and the individual who was being so horribly bullied by this other person ended up leaving and has never forgiven me for it and I don't blame her she was absolutely right to be angry with me because I really really mishandled that so badly Mm. Uh, and um yeah I, I was too much giving and in one individual the benefit of the doubt when the on yeah anyway so there's so been things like that George if I'm honest and there's some there's been some people that I've sacked that I regret sacking yeah you know I look back now I think I wished I'd handled that differently so no kind of single epiphany like I used to do a thing this way and now I do it that way but more like moments you know no, when I yeah. My, yeah you know yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that myself and I, I've had to let people go myself and I carry that as a guilt actually almost yeah. and um how you deal with that guilt can be quite difficult I think for CEOs and leaders do you think that's the right word guilt do you feel like there's some guilt sometimes you have to try and let go of yeah although I yes I do although I'd let him go I'm not so sure I think guilt is an incredibly useful emotion that we always feel like you shouldn't feel guilty about so yeah you should because guilt is what helps you to make better decisions the next time I feel guilty about the way I handled those things and I haven't, I don't, I don't let it like weigh me down, but nonetheless, I do feel guilt. And that means that I will make sure I never do it that way again. So I, you know, I think we have this thing that guilt and shame are negative things. I'm like, no, they're only negative if you allow them to rule your life to such an extent you can't move on. But if you use that guilt to power you to make better decisions, then keep the guilt. So I, I hope I never lose the guilt of those things, actually. Yeah. Don't let it go. Just don't let it weigh you down. Yeah, exactly. Use it to make sure you make better decisions in the future. Amazing, amazing. And yeah, and that for all CEOs and leaders, there's maybe a lesson there, isn't it? How do we, for anybody who has communicated with other people, we have to learn, don't we, sometimes to forgive ourselves for anything that we maybe we regret from the past. Um, great. So thank you for that one. Um, there is a question from uh, Valerina at DSC, and this is a great question here. So since the George Floyd murders, uh, murder in 2020, what positives have you seen in the way the charity sector has responded to, to that difficult situation? Yeah, I don't think it's just the charity sector, actually. Um, I think it's society as a whole. But I think people are finally starting to properly have the conversations. And I don't think it's going to die away. I think that, you know, I, I, I think we've reached a tipping point about conversations generally, actually, about, you know, people's rights and, and the way in which they're treated and the way in which they behave and things like that. And I think that certainly, like, you know, loads of charities have been getting it badly wrong for a long time. I would say largely they're, they're a function of society because society mm-hmm. gets it badly wrong. So I don't think there's any particular, you know, I don't think charities are necessarily particularly any worse than anybody else. Um, and I think sometimes I get a bit of a hard time for that. 
But I absolutely, in almost all the conversations I'm having, the speeches I'm giving, the issue around racial equality, race equity, that sort of thing are coming up. They're high on the agenda. We're keeping on speaking about it. Lots and lots and lots of charities are now taking it much more seriously than they did before. And I think we've reached, well, do you know what I honestly think, George? I think we've reached enough white people who have now suddenly become anti-racist as opposed to not being actively racist, but thinking it was, you know, understand there's a problem, but really had nothing to do with them because they weren't thinking racist thoughts. Just suddenly yeah. realise it's not enough. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, you can't you can't solve sexism by women alone. Men have mm. to stop being sexist and they mm -hmm. have to educate themselves and they have to learn. And women have to stop being sexist too. And I think it's the same, you know, you can't look at black and brown people all the time and say, right, you know, you're the victims of this, you've got to sort it because they don't create the problem. You know, so uh, so, but I genuinely think enough white people now have have realised properly realised and like I'm want to, and, yeah. want to do something about it. Of course, there are exceptions. You know, of course there are, but on the whole, most of the people I come across are they're ignorant, but they're not willfully willfully ignorant. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and it's also you've got to like you know speak to people about you know saying to them look. You're not responsible for the horrors of the past, but you are responsible for now. Absolutely. So, like, don't get defensive about the fact that you didn't personally introduce slavery, but do get active about the fact that the consequences of that are still living in the world today, and it's exhibited in the systems and the opportunities around us. You can't undo that, but you can fix this. So, focus on that and stop being so bloody defensive. You know, or you know, feeling like you're being victimised because you're white. Like, yeah, yeah, you don't know anything about being a victim. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Perfect, perfect. And, and so you, the role that managers and leaders have to play, is there anything, if a manager is, or a leader is sat there thinking, I, I need to be doing more to support my team, and obviously we did an EDI study at DSC, would you recommend an organisation doing something like that? Uh, yes and no. And the, yeah. first thing is, the first thing is, educate yourself. Assume you do not understand about racism or sexism or any kind of prejudice in the workplace and go and read the stuff. You know, read the books that are out there, um, which I'm sure, you know, that we'll do a bibliography of for people who are interested. But go and read and educate. So assume that the problem starts with you. Teach yourself first, because there's no amount of EDI studies or policies or processes you can put in to place if you haven't properly understood as a leader what the problem is. So get that bit right first. Make sure you've intellectually and emotionally understood the scale of the problem. And then putting in place the processes, the practice, creating the conversations becomes easy. Yeah. You know, so 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 it's for me it's like the lazy thing to do is to go and commission an EDI study I mean they can be useful and we did it at DSC because we'd already started the work on this we did it because we wanted to establish the baseline yeah. we wanted to see what's it like now so we knew what it was that we'd have to change I mean we were lucky I don't know is it luck is it hard work but of course we came out fantastically our staff don't feel that this is a racist or sexist organization they don't feel disadvantaged they don't you know yeah. the feedback was overwhelmingly put i mean of course there are some things we could do better and we will do and we're doing the training like everybody else does yeah but that but that, that we didn't start the work on equality and equity in dsc because of the edi study we'd already started it ages before you know and, and the other thing as you know george is that we buy people books yeah. You know, we bought every single member of DSC staff a copy of um, Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. We bought The Managers um, of uh, White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo, which I know is a controversial tone, yeah. but actually we found it really useful, I think, as a management team. Oh, yeah. you know, we, 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 yes, yeah, so we, and we begin conversations about it. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, because also lots of organisations are like, we can't afford to do the studies. Well, then don't. But start with the education. Start having conversations. And also, it's, it's really not that difficult. Don't you want to lead an organisation where people feel valued and, and appreciated and cared for? Yeah. And if you do, take the steps that you need to take in order that that's how people feel. I remember, I remember seeing you reading Invisible Women and, and I'd seen an article in The Guardian, I think it was, about it. And I said to you, oh, I want to read that. And you went, go and buy that now and DSC will pay for it. And yeah. I, maybe I wouldn't have read that book if that had moment hadn't happened. And I think about that book all the time. And I learned many powerful lessons from, from Caroline's book there. And that yeah. was because you turned to me straight away and were like, DSC will get this. Like, we want you to read this. If you're willing to learn this, we want you to pay for it. And yeah, and that always stands out to me as like a, one of the real benefits actually of being in a learning culture like this where we're challenged to do. Yeah. That. Yes, because it's one of the things we absolutely are. We, ex- we expect people to read in work time so if we catch you at your desk reading a book you know that a book that's teaching something or learning something that's that counts as work because we you know work is more than just you you know tapping away at your responding to emails so we're very clear and also we will pay for people to have the books we can't always pay for people to go on expensive training programs but we can always buy people books and we do definitely definitely and then that, that's it that's how you build a learning culture isn't it and encourage people to have that time to, to spend learning so we're, we're coming to the end of a of a turbulent time in the sector and maybe turbulent isn't the right word but uh, of course we've been heavily impacted by furlough so we're recording this in uh, june 2021 right now so with the end of furlough potentially kind of being spoken about how do you think that might impact the, the working world or the charity sector specifically well, I think when furlough comes to an end, an awful lot of organisations are going to have to lose the staff that they were furloughing. I think a lot of people are about to lose their jobs. Okay. Um, and in the charitable sector, what that means is services that will also have to be cut. Um, I think that, you know, I think the furlough scheme has been fantastic and has been hugely helpful and it's kept organisations going. Although I think for the charitable sector, it hasn't been very well run okay. because we've basically forced people to not work when they could have been serving more vulnerable people in society. And I think that... The purest attitude of the government to this like we can't trust organizations or charities or staff not to cheat the system has been really really short-sighted True. no amount of campaigning on our behalf to say like don't furlough them support the salary so that they can yeah. still go out and be volunteer outreach workers and you know deal with people with disabilities or what have you um but yeah so i think that lots and lots and lots of people are suddenly going to be looking for work unfortunately yeah um but that's why one, one of the things we're going to do at DC is we're going to rerun George the how to get a job. Perfect. Yeah, great. We're doing those in September, October, so that how you can, you know, differentiate. So because because like we don't care if you're not employed in the sector, if mm. you know we want to support you. Yeah. One more yeah. And it will be free like the first one was. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so we will be doing things like that. But, yeah, I think it's going to be really tough. And I think actually the impact of the pandemic is going to be felt in the voluntary sector much, much beyond what's happening now. Because while businesses can recover money and recover their investments and, you know, uh, and like pay off bills, you can't recover the lost child. Mm-hmm. You can't recover the lost service. You know, is that people will have fallen off the edge during this time who weren't able to be served by charities and that will get worse as time moves forward but having said that the sector's incredible it's resilient it's brave it's bold it doesn't give up you know the bigger the challenges that come across and the more like the more likely we are to step up and overcome them so i i'm not worried for the sector as a whole but i do think individual charities and some individuals are going to suffer Mm, mm. Where, where do you think the sector will be in five years here 
still doing its work. Still, yeah. you know, it's like there are always going to be people, causes, creatures in need. Yeah. And there are always going to be groups of people who want to come together and set up a formal structure in order to serve them. So, you know, we'll still be here doing our work. What about Saving, supporting people, helping people? And yeah, and DSC's role in that, still doing the same? We'll still be here helping you to be the best you can possibly be in order to make the world the best it can possibly be. Definitely. Great. So in terms of people that you're inspired by, um, I've put CEOs or leaders, but anybody could be sporting, could be whatever. Any Anybody or it kind of you look up to for management and leadership? Not really, because everybody in different ways. There's no one person I say that person is absolutely amazing. I mean, I could name a list of as many people as you like. I have people who have been really close to me. So there's a woman called Maria Pemberton who used to be my boss and then she came to work for DSC and I was her boss and she's, I would say, one of my closest confidants. I find her absolutely inspiring the way in which she tackles issues in her life and the way she deals with things and things like that. So she's, you know, particularly special. But generally speaking, you know, if you if you only have one person, because I'm not into hero worship, George, very much. I don't think it's healthy to like have here and I think people get attached to heroes they, they fall off their pedestals or you become blind to their faults about people like Winston Churchill or Gandhi or whatever you know these were not these were human beings with faults you know and so I don't I don't like to say this one person was in, it's much more likely moments Absolutely. like observing a particular individual behaving in a particular way that has been inspiring to me rather than necessarily a whole person yeah or a specific trait they maybe have not their wider life but absolutely i could learn from yeah that. yeah yeah great. great it's nice to share maria pemberton there yeah you know of course know about her at dsc um so what three things then if somebody wants to be a ceo at either a charity or of course at any any organization uh private sector of course what three things is there three things that someone should look to do now in their career to get themselves ready um, take every opportunity to do everything you can so you get a reputation of being a doer you know that you can fill your cv with you know i led this project i participated in this project like don't wait for it to come to you go and volunteer you know people put out call can anybody help me out here just go and help out you know go and be kind and supportive to other people i would say that there are sort of two different types of chief execs in the voluntary sector they're what i call cause chief execs and career chief execs mm. cause chief executives tend to be passionate about the cause really and the chief exec thing is just a, a by the by they just happen to end up being a chief exec whereas the other people are really interested in being chief execs of organizations both are valid work out which one you are because that will very much dictate your career choices and what you do you know there are those people who don't really mind that much what charities they lead they just they want to do the leadership which, which is totally valid so i'm not yeah. saying that's a good thing yeah. like work out which one of those are is it that you want to be a leader or is it that you want to like affect a cause mm. you know that will help you to make the right decisions about what you do next. And you said three, become financially literate. You know, it's like you have to understand the money. You, you cannot rely on other people to do it for you. It doesn't mean you've got to be a trainer or qualify as an accountant, but learn how to read a balance sheet, a sofa and a set of accounts. Yeah, absolutely. And if somebody wanted to learn how to do that, what, what would you recommend to getting them to do? Well, we have wonderful books at DSC that you can learn how to do. Battle on the Board has a whole section on how to understand a set of balance uh, management accounts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can. It's not that difficult to learn how to do. You know, you, you just Google. Yeah. Yeah. What's SOFA and how does it work, or what's the management accounts and how does it work? So there's plenty of books out there. There's no excuse to not know. Perfect. Perfect. So you mentioned about it's a battle on the board, and of course the books. Um, how else can people learn from your management and leadership skills? You've got the four books. Where can they get those books? 
they can get them from DSC and yep. preferably from DSC because that's better for for our finances or of course on Amazon or you know and and some of them are stocked in bookshops um, yep. but mostly you'll probably get them online perfect perfect and, and it's worth saying that all of these proceeds for the books they don't go to Deborah as though she's the brilliant author they go to, to DSC and they support our, our charity yeah is there anything exactly right. you wanted to say about management and leadership in the sector Deborah? I think it's really good. I think people criticise all the time and say that we're not very good at management leadership in the sector and there's all this, you know, we've got to develop the skills. And actually, I think it's absolutely bloody incredible what people learn and what they do with very few resources and almost no training. Do we all have things that we can do better? Absolutely. Should we be complacent? Definitely not. But actually, we have much to be proud of. Definitely. Definitely. So how do people connect with you then as a person? I know you're on Twitter. How do they connect with that? So they can follow me on Twitter at yep. Deborah Tyler, and I, I, I'm on Twitter quite a lot. I'm not so, I'm on Instagram, but I very rarely use it because it's pictures and I prefer words. LinkedIn, although I, I'm not a frequent user of LinkedIn, I, so if you if you follow me or message me on LinkedIn, don't be surprised if you don't hear from me for weeks and weeks and weeks on end because I have to remember to go and look in it. Um, so mostly Twitter. Or you, obviously, you can contact me at DSC Tyler at dsc.org.uk, and I'm always happy to talk and engage with people where I can. Great. So thank you very much for sharing today. And uh, of course, this brings us to the end for Charity Questions podcast from the Directory of Social Change. Thanks, Deborah. Cheers. Thanks, George. Bye. Bye, all. Yeah. Thank you for watching Charity Questions by the Directory of Social Change. So this is the podcast where we bring charity experts to you and we ask them the questions that you provide us via social media. So if you want to get involved, please check out the Directory of Social Change on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, to hear more about this content and to learn more about Charity Questions, subscribe to our YouTube channel now and of course, like this video to let us know if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for watching. Cheers.